What's, what's stopping you? What's in your way? What's your giant? And man, if I was a prosperity gospel preacher, I would love to be able to just give that message. But there's a big problem with that. Goliath was never intending to fight David. It was not David's giant. Goliath was never coming against David. What did David say? He says, you are defying the living God. This was an enemy of God, not an enemy of David. It wasn't something that was preventing David from fulfilling his destiny. That's not in the story. It's, it's not there. Just so you know where we're headed tonight, uh, we are going to only do two chapters. What I do have to say about these two chapters is in terms of the church world, they're pretty famous. And chapter 17 is pretty infamous. But I don't know that they always get applied accurately or that they get talked about in the right way. Um, I've even made the mistake myself in preaching through some of these chapters, and we'll talk about that, about Sometimes, because these things get talked about so much, you hear things over and over and over again, and what you hear becomes reality rather than what's actually in the text. So we're going to point that out tonight and see what mistakes we've made and see what's really being said instead. So let's get started. As we left off in chapter 15, God had rejected Saul as king, and we saw Samuel mourning for Saul, even though Samuel had rebuked Saul. Samuel had understood and told Saul everything that he had done wrong. And Samuel agrees with God. He's still mourning for him because he has such a soft heart for people. And uh, we talked about how we should apply that to our lives with even people who refuse to listen to the gospel, that we should still love and pray for them. Jesus asked us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And Samuel is a real shining example of that. So much so that the next chapter starts out like this. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? So time has passed and Samuel still has this deep regret in heart for Saul. And God is even pointing this out to him. He says, how long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. And then he gives him a command, fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, if you were listening or here with us through some of the earlier parts of 1 Samuel, when Saul was picked as king, you heard God and Samuel state over and over again, this is what you wanted, the Israelites. This is what you wanted. This is different. God has said something different. He's saying, now I am going to provide for myself a king. This is God's choice, not the people's choice. And so Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears it? He'll kill me. And you get a little bit of insight into what's going on with Saul, how off the rails he's gone. That Samuel, mind you, in the last chapter, hacked up a king into pieces from a foreign land, right? He's not, Samuel's not mousy. He's not a wuss. He's not a scaredy cat at all. But Saul has gotten to the point where Samuel is like, what, 
what do I do because Saul, Saul's going to kill me if he finds out what I'm doing? And so the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Which is true. If you're taking an animal with you to go sacrifice, that's all you have to say. You don't have to tell the whole story. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. Verse 4, so Samuel did what the Lord said. Now, there's more to this verse, but I just like how it started. Because I often wonder, if God was writing my story, how many sentences would start, so Steve did what the Lord said. Because I'm, I'm thinking, I'd really like that to happen a lot more than it probably does. And that's probably true for each one of us. How often, if God is writing your story, could he say, you did what he said? But Samuel does. And I, just, I like that how plain God put that. Samuel did what the Lord said, and he went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? I also like that. The people saw Samuel coming, and they were scared. Why? Again, in the last chapter, Samuel was so bold as to finish the work that Saul should have done, and he hacked up King Agag, the Amalekite, uh, in front of everybody, into pieces. This man who, not all that long ago, people were telling Samuel, you're getting old, so we need a king. And now they're like, all right, maybe Samuel's not quite as uh, done as we thought he was. He's still got some energy in his bones. And so now we're a little afraid. What's the prophet here for? What's he going to do to us? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he goes and he invites Jesse and all of his sons to, to the sacrifice to enjoy this fellowship offering with God. And uh, this is interesting because, you know, this is one of the first times I'm reading this and I thought to myself, wait a second, the sacrifices are only supposed to be done at the tabernacle. But the tabernacle hasn't been put in God's city yet. So the sacrifices were still able to happen at each town. And so God is still waiting for his permanent dwelling in Jerusalem. So the tabernacle's at Shiloh. And so just so you understand, at this point, Jerusalem hasn't yet been captured by the Jews. So God doesn't have his permanent dwelling. So the sacrifices can happen in each town. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, this is interesting because this is one of the first times I can remember reading through this, Samuel makes a real mistake. Now, Samuel, he's probably drawing off of his experience because Samuel was the one who anointed Saul. And so he thinks he knows how this process is going to go. And he, he sees Eliab, Jesse's son, probably Jesse's largest son, and he goes, I remember what Saul looked like when I anointed him, this guy must be the one that God wants me to pick from Jesse's family because he's working off of his prior experience. But he seems to fail to recognize that this is God's king, not the people's king, like Saul was. And so the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So this is a very soft correcting of Samuel by God by saying, no, I know what we did before, but we were giving the people what they wanted. 
I am giving myself a king and I don't look at the outward appearance. I don't look at what man looks at. So don't look at their appearance. Don't consider that. I'm looking at their heart. You just listen to me. And that's good advice. Just listen to what God is saying and avoid the culture. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, they, are all the young men here? There remains yet the youngest. There he is keeping the sheep. This is where we've gone wrong in this. And I've even made this mistake. Where we talk about David as if Jesse was ignoring David. As if because David was off tending to the sheep, that he was being overlooked by his father. That's not true. What we've done when we do that is we take a look at our modern society, and we read this through modern eyes. And we think, well, he must have just said this is his least favorite son, and he's ignoring him. That's not true. This is all very cultural. David was the youngest. Therefore, David was the one who had the least coming to him in terms of inheritance. And because of that, this was his job. It was just a cultural thing. It had nothing to do with Jesse overlooking him. It is true that by saying he's the youngest, it could also be he's the least, but that's in reference to the cultural inheritance because he was the youngest born. It, it is contradictory to what we've seen in the past in Scripture because Joseph in early on in Genesis, right? Joseph at a time was the youngest, though Benjamin was younger than him later. But being one of the youngest children was elevated by Jacob and favored. And then, you know, God chose Jacob over Esau, but Isaac didn't choose Jacob over Esau. Isaac wanted Esau to get the blessing because of a cultural thing. So we've made this distinction where we try to talk about being overlooked and unwanted or not living up to the expectation. No, this was just normal societal stuff. But that's actually makes a bigger point because God used the opposite of what culture does. David was put on the bottom of the ladder because he was the youngest. He had the least inheritance and God gave David greater than the inheritance he could have ever gotten from his family. Also interesting, Jesse passed seven sons in front of Samuel. What's the number seven? Completeness, right? And the eighth son was David. Eight is often in Scripture representative of new beginnings. And David is a name that's often connected to the Messiah because the Messiah would come through the lineage of David, through the root of Jesse, that's all throughout Scripture. And the eighth son, a new beginning, was David. Just like Jesus was resurrected on the first day of the week, the day after the seventh day of the week, the eighth day, the new beginning. Because it's the beginning of a new week. And so there's a little piece of gospel stuck in there with what's going on with David. God flips culture on its head. 
he chooses the least, and he chooses the eighth, the new beginning. So understand that there's something deeper going on there, and we missed it because we got so caught up in our cultural talking about peer pressure and being unwanted or looking like the least. There's more to what's being said here than that. And so Samuel, Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Samuel went back home. Samuel took a whole horn filled with oil. They used to like smother the oil all over his place. It's not like what you think of if maybe you've done more, a more traditional communion where you get a little dab on your forehead. Uh, no, this was poured on you and smeared over your face. And so his brothers are going to remember this moment. They had to sit and wait for the sacrifice to be done. They had to sit and wait to eat while David comes in from being a shepherd. And they had to watch the prophet of God, the one who everybody was afraid when they saw him coming, pour oil over his head and anoint him and give him this place of honor. This is something his brothers are going to remember. But there is also something here that's not mentioned. What is he being anointed for? Now, we know from context that he's being anointed king. But it doesn't actually say that he told David what he was being anointed for. We don't know. We've made assumptions. And so that's not in the text. But that is what he was being anointed for. But we don't know that David actually knew that. We don't know that Jesse knew that. We don't know that his brothers knew that. We've just made an assumption because we can look back into what it ultimately related to. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And this is interesting. So the Lord, spirit of the Lord comes down on David. It's with David the rest of his life. In this moment, the spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. This is a uniquely Old Testament deal. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon people for mighty acts. That's what all the book of Judges was about. We saw it happen with Saul. We've seen it happen with Samuel. And now, God has rejected Saul, and the Spirit of God leaves him and rests on David to perform mighty acts. Because we don't have the mediator. We don't have the ability for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us yet, like we do in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit can only come upon you. And so, this is something unique to the Old Testament, and it's gone from Saul. And it's now resting on David. And here's the really disturbing part. A distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So God allowed some demonic or evil spirit to mess with Saul. He just allowed it to happen because he had rejected Saul because of Saul's pride. And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful, skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand and the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. So this is interesting what we're gonna see tonight. We see David's entrance, David's meeting, David's initiation kind of. So we've seen David's initiation with God's prophet. Now we're going to see David's initiation to his replacement, King Saul. 
And then in chapter 17, we'll see David's initiation to the nation. And so there's three meetings that the people have with David. And so here's how David meets the man he's going to replace. Saul tells his servants to bring someone who can play the harp well. And one of his servants answers, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is, a skillf- who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a, mighty man, a man of war, prudent in speech and handsome person, and the Lord is with him. The thing that just left Saul is with David. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. So Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was whenever the spirit, of God, or spirit from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand that Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. I talked about this in in church a while back. This is a really interesting piece. Now, David's initiation to the man he's going to replace is an evil spirit is tormenting Saul because the spirit of God has left him. And so he calls for someone who's anointed and good at playing the harp. David is that man, and he comes into the kingdom, and he serves the king, and Saul ends up loving him. Because whenever David plays, he's refreshed and he feels well because the music that David plays frees him from the evil spirit. What I love about that is the power of music, the power of worship. God's anointed, someone who is anointed at music, someone who's anointed with the spirit of God causes the demons to flee. That's pretty powerful. The problem is, when the demons flee, Saul still doesn't look to God. He still only looks to the one who's anointed by God. And I often wonder, especially in modern church, how often we get caught up in the music, we feel like we're connecting because something amazing is happening, but how many people walk out of an amazing worship service thanking the band rather than the God who provided them with the spirit to do what they're doing. And so just to, worship music is powerful, but we need to remember the power comes from the spirit, not the musicians. Now here's the big chapter, chapter 17. You'll see the banner, says David and Goliath. So you might know what I'm gonna talk about. Let's get to it because this has been messed up. Before we go through chapter 17, I want you to remember something. When, da- when God picked Saul, when Samuel anointed Saul, something was said about Saul several times. When he was presented before the people, when he was picked by Samuel, several times the scripture said, Saul stood a head and shoulders above the rest, talking about how big and tall Saul was because man looks at the outward appearance. Remember that when we dig into the story. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and we were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. They encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up the ba- in battle array against the Philistines. 
The Philistines stood on a, on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. That's a pretty good picture. It's pretty graphic. It gives you a pretty good detail of what's going on. There's an army on a hill over here, an army on a hill over here, and in the middle, a big, large battlefield valley. That's important to understand because a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, which would equal about nine and a half feet tall, nine feet, nine inches tall. However, just for your own interest, what we have found in some of the older Masoretic texts and even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I believe the number actually states four cubits and a span, which would put Goliath at just shy of seven feet tall. So we're not really sure. But either way, he's massive. He's either Shaq or bigger than Shaq, um, which is enormous. And the average height of an Israelite around this time would be two inches shorter than me, if you can imagine something shorter than me. At 5'3", I'm 5'5". So this is Goliath, this big, huge guy, has come out into the valley. He has a bronze helmet on his head, and he's armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin on his shoulder. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, or about 15 pounds, and his coat weighed about 125 pounds. And a shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and cried out, The armies of Israel. Very important. He stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel. Remember that. And said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Underline that. What does he call them? The army of Israel and the servants of Saul. That's important. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So this is what's happening. Two armies camped out each on a hill, refusing to make the first move. Why? Because they're both on a hill. Think about this. You want the high ground. If you attack first, you're attacking from the low ground and going up. So you don't want to be the one to make the first move. So what does Goliath do? He comes out and stands in the valley. He's this hired hand, big, massive champion. Does anybody come fight me? If I win, you'll be our slaves. If you win, we'll be your slaves. So that's what they're dealing with. And when they see Goliath in the valley, even though they've got the high ground, they're looking down at him and shaking in their boots. Now, David, that means mood change. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So apparently, 
just from that context, you can get that even though he was brought in to please Saul with the harp and become his armor bearer, he didn't stay with Saul all the time because he had duties back at home. And so David is now at home, not out at the battlefield where you thought he might be from the previous chapter. And the Philistines drew near and presented himself, or the Philistine drew near and presented himself for 40 days, morning and evening. So this big giant is out there taunting you for 40 days, and everybody's afraid. And then Jesse said to his son David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So his father, they've been gone for a while. His father's worried. So Jesse sends David out with some supplies to the army and says, bring back news. He wants to know what's going on. Now Saul and and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things as, uh, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. So David hears the taunting. He hears Goliath saying, you servants of Saul, you army of Israel, I defy you this day. If anybody can beat me, we'll be your servants. But if I beat you, you're going to be our slaves. And he hears this, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. I like the way that the New King James puts that. They were dreadfully afraid. These men were in awe of this massive figure. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. So now David's hearing all of this. He's, he's hearing that whoever fights him, if they win, they'll be rich. They'll get to marry the king's daughter, which means they'll now be a part of the royal family. And then the best part of the deal, no taxes. Sign me up. So David, after hearing this, speaks to the men who stood by him saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, that second half of that verse, that's important. That's an underline, that's a highlight, that's a circle. Whatever you gotta do to make that important point because the tone has changed. We've heard what the world said. We've heard what Goliath said. He called them servants of Saul, the king, servants of a man. He called them the armies of Israel, like they're just this material thing that he's going to destroy. David's perspective, this is the reason David was anointed. This is the reason God chose David. Because David's perspective is this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies, not who serve Saul, not of Israel, but the armies of the living God, the one true and only God. David loved 
God. That's it. This is why David was chosen. And so the people answered him in this manner. So it shall be done for this man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab answered, uh, Eliab spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, there we go, I got it out right that time. Uh, He says to David, now Eliab is the oldest, he's the biggest, he's the one that Samuel passed up first. Samuel rejected Eliab first. He remembers this. Not that long ago, he watched the prophet of God anoint this little David, his youngest brother, the one who didn't deserve it, according to the culture. Instead, he's watching his little brother, who's not in the army, talking to all these people, stirring stuff up, and he's angry. And what does Eliab say? Why did you come here? You have no right to be here. This is like spiritual warfare 101. This is the type of stuff you might hear in your inner voice in the whispers of the night. Who do you think you are? Why did you come here? The second thing he says, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? Don't you know that your calling is so much smaller? What do you think you're doing here? Did you leave your responsibilities, the thing you're really called to And then he says, I know your pride. Really, he's deflecting. He's pointing the finger. I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You have only come down to see the battle. He's saying, you're only here to stir up everybody else. You just want to see, you just want to see blood. And David said, what have I done now? Which is a great answer. He's like, what did I do? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoke were heard, they were reported to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go fight with this Philistine. So what's happening? David hears Goliath, and he says, who does he think he is defying God? Someone should stand up for God. And then everybody hears David say this. They're like, oh, we're all scared. This little guy who's not in the army is talking big. And the rumors spread and they get to Saul. So Saul brings David in and David's still wondering who the heck is going to stand up for God, right? Now, Saul's the big guy. He's bigger than everybody else. He's a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. If anyone has the capacity physically to stand up against Goliath, it's Saul. What's he doing? He's, his, he's the farthest away. He's the farthest away from the Philistine. And so David comes to him and he says, don't worry, I'll do it. No one else is going to do it, I'll do it. So Saul said to David, this is great. Saul, who's the furthest away from the Philistine, afraid for his life and waiting for someone from his army to take up the duty he should have, says to David, who is willing to fight, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're a kid, you're a youth. And him, Goliath, a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. First of all, killing a lion and a bear, 
with your bare hands. It's a pretty good resume. But when you add, I grabbed the lion by its mane and punched it dead, that's pretty good. He says, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. He brings it back around. He is defying God. I will not stand for this. Moreover, David said, this is really important, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David is not taking credit. He is saying, God was with me and delivered me in these situations. God will deliver me again. It's not pride in himself. It's understanding who God is and how God has been with him thus far. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. For some reason, I read that sarcastically as if he's like, go. Yeah, Lord be with you. I see Goliath. Good luck. So Saul clothed David with his armor and he put a bronze helmet on his head and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. Now, remember how big Saul was and David small, so this must have been funny. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, and, and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't walk with these, for I, I have not tested them. So David took off all of his armor. That's both awesome and crazy. David is saying, I'm going to go do this, but I'm going to do it without a sword. I'm going to do it without armor. I'm just going to do it with my shepherd tools. So then David took his staff in his hand, for he chose himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch, which he had his sling in his hand and drew near to the Philistine. I think there's some interesting insight in here. Because if there is a parallel to be made into who David might represent here, it's Jesus. And David doesn't deliver right away as a man of war. He comes as a shepherd with shepherd's tools. Interesting. And just so you know, the, the stones were probably about the size of a baseball or a tennis ball. And with a sling, you could get them to travel about 100 miles an hour if you were skilled with a sling. So uh, just so you understand what's about to happen. So he chose for himself five smooth stones about the size of a baseball, put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch he had and a sling in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to, to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistines looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. That's important. So first of all, he looks at David and he goes, what, Is this a joke? And then he curses David by the gods of the Philistines. Now remember, that's a dangerous play because God made a promise to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Big mistake, Goliath. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. 
he's talking about all the tools and the weapons of war. David says, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Interesting. You come at me with weapons of war. I come at you in the name of the Lord. I also think about the second coming of Christ. He does, the sword comes out of his mouth. It's the word of God that Christ uses to defeat. That's pretty interesting. To this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. In this day, I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. It's pretty graphic. I just like that. I'm going to say it again because I think it's great. So This day, I will give the carcasses of this camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Man, he had some stones. Pun intended. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Listen again. Based, remember what I just said? The Lord does not save with sword and spear. doesn't save with weapons of war. The battle is the Lord's. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, then David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. This is amazing. This big, huge man, bigger than Shaq, this hu huge man of war is yelling and screaming, and he's, he looks at David with disdain because he's so small. What does David do? David runs toward him. Man, I wish I could say that about my life. I often don't run towards controversy or danger or the headline, you know. I don't run toward the hard thing all the time. David did because he wasn't afraid. Because he wasn't afraid because he knew God was on his side. And we'll get to that in a minute. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David because God doesn't save by weapons of war. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistine in as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road in Sharaim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. So David carried Goliath's head with him for a long way. That's, I just, it's funny. I just picture this mammoth head as he's just traveling around Israel. Um, it's just an interesting visual for you. So think about that when you go to sleep tonight. When, David saw, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is, the, is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I, I don't know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought with him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? Now, 
This is interesting because David served in Saul's house, right? So what's, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is, A, Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. So he's already a little messed up in the head. And secondly, the only thing that concerned Saul, because he was so selfish, was the music that David played. But now, David has done something that means David gets to marry Saul's daughter. So now he has things he needs to deal with, and he has to know who the family is that he has to deal with. This is really where this is coming from. So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, I, I promised you that we'd get to what's wrong with this story most often. I would love if I could preach about this story the way that it's always preached about. The problem is, it's just not what the text says. When you hear this story preached about, you hear, what is your giant? What's preventing you from being everything you could be? If God is on your side, who could be against you? If you would just stand and face your giant, you could defeat it. You could be everything God wants you to be. You could be everything you want. What's, what's stopping you? What's in your way? What's your giant? And man, if I was a prosperity gospel preacher, I would love to be able to just give that message. But there's a big problem with that. Goliath was never intending to fight David. It was not David's giant. Goliath was never coming against David. What did David say? He says, you are defying the living God. This was an enemy of God, not an enemy of David. It wasn't something that was preventing David from fulfilling his destiny. That's not in the story. It's, it's not there. David's own words were, you are coming against the living God. This is not about me fulfilling my dreams. This is about me defending God's word. This is more akin to spiritual battle, to spiritual warfare. What in this world is standing and defying God? Am I on the side of God? Am I standing up and fighting against the things that are standing against God? That's what this story is about. It's not about what's preventing me from reaching my heights. It's just not there. Which, by the way, makes sense because the first commandment is to not have any gods before your God, before the Lord your God. When we look at this in terms of about how I can achieve my best life now, about how I can get everything that I want out of life, about what's stopping me from being my best, from living my best life, then who am I focused on? Me. This is asking us to focus on God and what is against God and fighting for God, for the gospel, for the word, for him. And if there is a parallel, if there is a parallel, if there is typology, then David does not represent us. We are not the guy in the battlefield all the time. In fact, we're more often the army, scared and waiting for someone to save us and wondering why the government can't bail us out. Because Saul is the one they're looking to, and they said, we put our trust in you. And that's all of our discourse in society, is who's going to bail us out from this problem, rather than looking up to God. And if David is representative of anybody, it's not you and me, it's of Jesus as a shepherd, standing in the place for us, 
taking down the giant. And the giant, if I had to guess with this, there's a real typology to this story, I would say Goliath probably represents sin. If I was going to make a parable about this story. This story is not a parable. It's a historical event, first of all. But everybody felt like Goliath was unbeatable. Nobody felt like they could stand before him and measure up to his taunts. I think sin does that to, our, to ourselves. We often look at ourselves, that's what religion becomes. How can I get to God? How can I be good enough to stand before God? I just can't. I can't measure up to the Ten Commandments. This, is, this thing is undefeatable. I cannot do it. Someone has to stand in the place for me. That person who can stand in the place for me against sin, which I cannot defeat, is Jesus. Jesus can defeat sin. And only through him can I experience that victory. So if there is a parable to be made from this historical story, I think that's the one to be made. But if we are going to learn lessons from David, it's not about how we can fight against what's preventing me from earning my best, but really, what is out there that's fighting against God and against his church and against his word? And can I stand against that? And then know, if God is for me, who can be against me? And God will be for me only if my focus is him and not myself. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. I hope that tonight was something refreshing, something maybe new or that we needed to hear. Most importantly, I hope, God, that this was honoring to you and that we wiped away all of the previous sermons we've heard about this story and understood what the enemy is really after. The enemy is after you. He wants to sit on your throne, but he never will. And which side of the battle do we want to be on? I pray that we can understand how to be on your side of the battle and fight for you. In Jesus' name, amen.